Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes, a 30-year Wall Street veteran that's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide you with some candid views each week uh, that we screen for here in the shop. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news. But our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air, so we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. This week... It's January 2nd, 2016, and uh, we've got a show today that uh, is going to try to be a little bit organized. Um, First, I'm going to review 2015. It wasn't a great year. I'll get into some of that. Uh, And then I've got paging through national economic trends, which is going to talk a little bit about some of the big picture macro data series that we look at, and then um, finally, the meat of the show, three, I think, pretty good uh, stock ideas this week on the value guys. But first, some important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only. It's not a guarantee. Secondly, uh, I am professional uh, doing a careful analysis during the week. I've been careful to do none of that here on the show. Just kicked back. It's a holiday, for God's sakes, and I'm doing the show uh, just mainly for for the fans, the uh, the longtime listeners who really deserve more shows. So we're here to uh, kick off the new year with a new show. Uh, other caveats: one uh, and two. You've heard number three. I'm drinking, and again, no surprise to long-term listeners. I've got a holiday beverage with me this week. Uh, And my fourth caveat is, uh, please, uh, I may not have your best interests in mind. Do your own work. This is just, you know, uh, meant to be entertaining. And, you know, I may have your interests uh, not in sync with my own. So, uh, and my lawyers tell me I have to say that. So, um, thanks for tuning in. I feel like uh, I should do a toast to... uh, to, to Mo, who I think is off uh, uh, bicycling around uh, a desert somewhere, um, but he's going for some records, and good luck to him. And uh, I want to say thanks to Phil um, for being such a great long-term listener. Okay, first up this week, um, Let's do a review. It's January 2nd. I've got the uh, full year numbers in front of me somewhere. Um, Let's see. I had them here a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, First, let me say, as a longtime value investor, uh, it's been a horrible year. And so I started doing some work looking at past years. It's been, you know what, I don't want to depress anybody, but it's been a horrible decade. This goes back a long way. So I started pulling up some numbers. Uh, First, the year just passed, 2015. Small cap value, uh, as as measured by the Russell 2000, uh, was down, uh, what? Let me see here. Bear with me. 7.47%. That's terrible. It was the third worst performance among all the Russell indices. And give me a second here. I want to 
well, I was going to sort, but what have you on the rankings, it was number 58 out of 62 indices that Russell puts out. And this includes things I don't even understand what they are. I Googled them. The Russell 2500 Defensive Value Index, I, I can't even find a definition for that. So they've invented a lot of indices over the years. But the 2000 value, I think it's been around since 95 or 4. It's been a terrible year. Not only that, it's been a terrible decade. The Russell 2000 value uh, for the 10 years, uh, and I've been running a portfolio in this space for 14, so this kind of got me depressed. Uh, for 10 years, it's number 49 out of 56. So it's been a horrible decade for value. Now, here's the odd thing about that. Um, is that, you know, one of the, uh, one, one of the uh, Hall of Famers in investing, Eugene Fama and Ken French, uh, these guys are, I think, Nobel Prize winners. And, you know, they did some academic research on value. I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before. It's, uh, this, these trends are, in large part, why I do value. But at the Tuck Business School site, they put up data, Ken French does, of a study of small, all the style boxes back to 1920, I'm looking here, 6, okay? And as hard as this is to believe, if you invested $1 in 1926, June, and this is Tuck Business School. It's downloadable into Excel. Just go take a look at it. This uh, dollar turned into $238,000. That's unbelievable. That's small value. And again, they do their work largely the way Russell does, sort on price to book, that type of stuff. Pretty common sense. Now, the I think very interesting thing about that is that the next best style box is small core, which really is an average of value and growth. That dollar turned into sixty one thousand, and you're thinking that's a big number. Well, it compounds. I don't want to do too much work here, but it compounds. I think at around fourteen or thirteen percent. That's the power of compound interest. Um, if there's one thing you learn in math, I think it's compound interest, and it's amazing uh, how big that can grow to. But second to small value at 238000 is small core at 60000 The worst category is small growth. That dollar turned into $1,700. That's the absolute worst thing you could have bought. So... The conclusion that comes from Mr. French's work is that, by all means, if you're going to own small cap, own value, not growth. Okay, that's the, the conclusion that comes out of this academic work. It's the information that's driven who knows how many investment careers into value. Now, I'm looking at data here from the Russell site which, by the way, is now called the F.T. Russell site. So all my web pointers stopped working due to the uh, acquisition, I guess, of the Russell indices by the London Stock Exchange 
So it's the FTSE Russell now. Confused my computer. But in any case, um, for 10 years, uh, uh, the, the Russell 2000 value is ranked, I think I said 49. The Russell 2000 growth, try to find it. Uh, let's see here. I'm not finding it. Well, the Russell 2000 is 36. So that tells you something. Here it is. Russell 2000 growth index 10-year number 16. So 16 for growth, 49 for value. The exact opposite of what uh, Mr. French's long-time work suggests. And so... You know, as a value investor, I'm like, well, what what the heck is going on? Almost makes you just want to have a drink or something. So here's my theory. And thankfully, no one has come to a conclusion about this. So wild theories are okay. They're still legit. So in this case, uh, I pull up a graph of the – and I always – you hear me talk about Fred a lot, and um, the Federal Reserve at St. Louis does a wonderful job with data. They've just revamped the site, and while they've taken away my favorite paper publications, A, they actually phoned me about that when I put in a complaint. A guy phoned me, so I was very impressed with that. And secondly, the graphs are so useful in the sense that you can manipulate them, download them into Excel, create charts that it makes me a little bit forgiving on the fact that I can't just hit print and page through the publication like I always used to enjoy doing. Now I don't get to do that anymore. So I'm I'm a little bit lost, but I managed to print a few things out here. And And, and one of the things you can do is just go there and type in, long-term bonds, and a bunch of choices come up. So I did that. And um, the the graph of long-term, so let's say 10-year, uh, U.S. bond yields, this goes back to 1955. And back in 1955, the 10-year long-term government bond, U.S. government bond, paid 2.5%, the yield. And then it kind of went just straight up to 15% in kind of a logarithmic uh, upward curve. Um, And then uh, that was in 1980-81. And it's been pretty much straight down since then. Now it's below 2.5%, but it's just round-tripped. But the point, for the last 10 years, this bond has gone from 5% to 2.5%. So in terms of the present value of things, you're dividing things by 0.025 instead of 0.05, which means things, in a sense, are worth twice as much um, because the discount rate is half as much. So... um, you know, that's uh, that's a lot of wind at the back of stocks. 
Now, the other thing that happens when rates go down, of course, is the earnings or the cash flows that you're going to receive further out in the future, there's a disproportionate effect on the value of those because cash in year 10 on a growth stock has always been assumed to be more than on a value stock. It's just the uncertainty around it that... um, you know, causes people to prefer value and, and the, you know, the difficulty in forecasting that. But whatever that's going to be, when discount rates go down, it's worth more, you know, because the discount rate uh, brings it back to a present value at a higher level. And so when you add up all those future cash flows of growth stocks with rates coming down, they tend to be worth more, and therefore growth beats value over that decade. Again, I'm just making this up. This is for entertainment purposes only. My caveat, number five, I'm not an economist. But I've heard enough economists argue back and forth, guys way smarter than me, that it gives me comfort that anyone can lob in a theory and we're okay. That's how little we know. And in fact, recently, tangent thought, but I'm reading that a lot of academic studies in all fields uh, when peers now go to re, you know, redo the studies and duplicate the uh, outcomes, you know, none of this stuff is actually coming out the way scientists said in all kinds of fields. So to me, it's wide open. Um, and so there's my theory. Growth is beat value. It's very unusual historically. It's because of this decline in interest rates. And um, the good news about that ladies and gentlemen, is that the Fed, for the first time in, what, eight years? Uh, Roughly nine years, eight years, has uh, raised rates. And a lot of people made a huge deal out of a teeny tiny increment. But in part, when you're at 2% or 1.5%, a quarter is a lot. you got to think of it as a percent of the existing rate. So... It's, uh, you know, in some sense, it's more like a 10% effect than the quarter point. But still, they're going to start doing that now, and they should. Um, And so I think what we're at is an inflection point of growth, uh, you know, versus value. And, uh, you know, maybe the next 10 years of my career, you know, we'll have a little bit of wind in our backs, I looked at that. I was like, oh, my God. Anyway, that's uh, so that's the first part of our show, a little review of growth versus value. And I would encourage you, if you're a serious value investor or just want to understand what's going on with style boxes in general, I mean, really, that's all we have. People can call a fancy investment whatever they want, but there's equities behind there somewhere or long debt you don't want. Or futures or currencies or hedges that you probably don't want because the guy on the other side knows way more than you do. So, you know, we're back to equities, and this is really a pretty good study at the uh, Tuck Business School, Fama French, The Anatomy of Value and Growth Stock Returns is the name of that. Um, okay, well, you know, tied into this, this thinking about growth versus value is uh, really an opportunity because we've had this notion that we're about to head into a recession somehow. And uh, 
It certainly could be. You know, I'm no economist. But all I'd say is when I look at a whole bunch of economic data, and most of which is available on this FRED site, you know, uh, there's a lot of positives. So the negatives, I think, are pretty well known. Uh, the Fed's raising rates, which they should because the cost of capital really is higher than they've been charging for it. And um, and they've been having a, you know, a, a forced impact on um, uh, the market, certainly, and also on decisions about how to allocate capital. They've almost made it too easy to raise capital to invest in things. And I think it's good to have a higher bar for people investing what, in effect, is other people's money. So rates going up, I think, filters out bad ideas and all that. But the other bad news, of course, is the risks we've had, um, certainly from from China and uh, a falling demand there, as well as uh, their producers, presumably or potentially, you know, bringing a lot of low-cost goods into uh, into our country that can compete with domestic suppliers, and that gets people worried. And then, of course, we got energy prices down a lot, which, you know, uh, I may have said this on another show, but everyone seems kind of down about that. And yet, you know, if you ask around, uh, you know, would you like a barrel of oil in your house? I mean, uh, no one says yes to that, which means it's an intermediate good. And that means that um, it should be good for us because almost everything we buy uses oil or a derivative of oil, and I think that's going to be rolling through. But the immediate impact, impact of that is that that whole sector stops investing, and then uh, inventories that we're building you know, got a little out of hand because of the slowdown in purchases. And so people slow down, but you're seeing a little bit of a slowdown in manufacturing, but the biggest downward pressure on that is caused by um, new orders in machinery, mining, and oil field uh, machinery. This is right out of Fred. Now, that's a small piece of the entire manufacturing output um, by a giant order of magnitude, but it is the worst performing. And then you've got uh, you know, orders for transportation equipment, which is a little bigger thing. Those are coming off, too. We've had a little bit of overcapacity. So there is some adjustment going on. But, you know, when you look at um, capacity utilization, which is some indicator of incremental cost to make the next item for everyone, that's not in any dangerous area. Um, unemployment is uh, very low. That might normally be of concern, except that a couple of things. One, I keep hearing about these people who are too you know, uninspired to come back to work, well, maybe they'll start to be inspired because it's going to be easier to get a job with uh, unemployment, official unemployment as low as it is. And then you also have, I think, still the pressure of, uh, in an information society, you have increasing pressure on labor costs that come from other countries. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of concern about, you know, the... Um, the gap between rich and poor, I'd say first it's a bit overstated. Um, it's also in large part due to the demographics of an aging population. There's, there's a big part of it. But also, you know, with uh, the Internet, and it's not, it's not a new invention, but the ramifications of the reduction in the need for labor still continue to percolate 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to make uh, labor more productive with um, technology, but it's also a labor that's probably less valuable or less in short supply uh, than, uh, than it used to be. And plus, everyone has a college education now, so that edge used to you know, provide a, you know, an advantage in, in wages, and now it doesn't. So um, clearly there's a lot of forces at work. But when I look at the incremental cost of the next hour of labor in terms of what it might do for the economy in terms of slowing it down, I don't see that. So I might have taken a little tangent. But um, cost of capital is going to go tick up a little bit with uh, rates rising. But uh, corporate debt's been, you know, uh, in in fine shape, there's a lot of cash on balance sheets that's simply unused. So, in effect, the incremental cost for that next dollar of capital expenditure has kind of been zero anyway, or the cost of the ten-year bond that you were invested in, or something like that. Um, but you know, the input costs seem in in pretty good check. Um, energy's down a lot. That's a big cost to people. It's going to start rolling off. That's going to help. And uh, economies of scale are getting cheaper. What have you. I've got a bunch of bullet points here. But the point is, I think that the bear case for the economy has been a bit uh, overstated. And we basically had some kind of slowdown due to China slowing and um, you know energy slowing. But both of those things are going to end up helping the average American because costs somewhere in the chain are going to go down. And so um, I think that's just another reason to be optimistic as 2016 kicks off about certainly value uh, because uh, uh, a lot of these stocks have been beaten up here, and particularly in industrial online manufacturers as you've got this fear of China and uh, also the uh, reduction in orders from oil companies and Oil-related companies in the in the manufacturing space. So, wow, that's a lot. I don't even know how I got into all that, but that's my uh, macro piece paging through national economic trends. It used to be very leisurely. We just page through, but now I'm kind of forced to pick some charts. Anyway, so let me sum up before I get to three great stock ideas. Um, the sum up is that value's done terribly for a decade, not just last year. It's it's due to win in 2016. Just from a mean reversion point of view, I guess that would be the argument in that case. And then my second uh, argument would be on the macroeconomics. I think, you know, people are a little bit overstating the bear case for the economy, which is really just a slowdown in energy and... Uh, a fear of uh, interest rate hikes. So, okay. Well, uh, before we get to our next segment, uh, I think I've introduced, uh, we have a, a new sponsor on the show, and uh, and so um, there's a lot of legal wrapped up in sponsoring investment-related um, companies. So let me just read some approved copy. 
Right now, I'd like to talk for a minute about our new sponsor, Falcon Capital Management, LLC. Falcon is an SEC-registered investment advisor managing equity strategies using a value approach, pretty much like we talk about here on the show, with a team of institutional investment professionals averaging nearly 30 years in the business. The approach is based on fundamental equity research that leads to estimates of the true worth of the underlying companies, adhering to lessons taught by value investor pioneers like Ben Graham and John Burr Williams. Falcon will buy a stock when it can be purchased at a significant discount to the estimate of the underlying true worth of the company and patiently own it until it can be sold at fair value or even a premium to fair value. I'm pleased to tell you that Falcon now has a fund available through TD Ameritrade. All you need to do is go to www.tdameritrade.com and click on the tab labeled Mutual Funds and enter the ticker FALCX. That's www.tdameritrade.com, the tab Mutual Funds, and the ticker FALCX FALCX. Now some important information. All investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact 855-55-FALC-X or 855-553-2529 for a prospectus and read it carefully. Fund is distributed by IMST Distributors, LLC. Okay, I'm back, and um, the second half of our show is uh, three great stock ideas, or medium, I guess is the way to think about it, um, and then I've got a, I've got a, uh, a fourth, if I'm in the mood, but that whole macro thing, it just got me going, you know, I don't know. I uh, tired me out, actually. Uh, but let's get into it right now. Here's the thing. It's 2016. It's January 2nd. I've, I don't think I've ever done a show this soon, right at year end, where I could actually talk about the past year and think about the future year. So very excited about that. I've got uh, some stocks here I really like. Why? I'm going to just reveal. I own them. Okay, full disclosure. These are stocks I actually like, and in the spirit of the show, um, or actually own, I should say, in the spirit of the long history of the show, I like to do as little work as possible, particularly around the holidays, and so, um, you know, this week, I just said, well, you know, what do I like of stocks that I own myself, you know, and so uh, let's, let's kick off. Uh, there's three of them. First one is uh, Glue Mobile, ticker GLUU. It's a mobile game manufacturer. Uh, second up is uh, Inventure Foods, SNAK is the ticker, and they distribute and package food, healthy snack food, but also fruit. 
uh, for smoothies. That's snack. And then number three is Thor Industries, ticker T-H-O, and they make um, recreational vehicles or RVs, as they're known in the trade. So let me start off with with glue, ticker GLU. Uh, I'm sorry, GLUU. The stock is uh, around $2.50. It's been in a range this year of 220 to 703. It's uh, it's had a good period. It's got a bad period. But for those of you that don't know these guys, they make a bunch of games that go on phones. So um, Android and iOS for Apple. That's primarily what they do. Do they have some other things in here that go on other phones? Uh, I don't think so. If they do, it's not meaningful. Um, And then, I don't know if you've heard of any of these games, but let me just tell you what some of them are. Blood and Gory, okay? Contract Killer. Deer Hunter, you might have heard of that. That's their biggest seller. Eternity Warriors. Frontline Commando. And Heroes of Destiny. So that's some pretty cool stuff. And uh, and the thesis on this one is simply that, um, you know, we're in a period where there's a lot of free time. I was talking earlier, why are wages going down of unskilled or average skilled people? It's because production guys really have it nailed. And we got a lot of stuff and we got a lot of free time. Um, and so, you know, mobile games, games in general, games, thousands of years of games, games, games. And I'd, I'd say that, uh, if you watch a group of kids or adults, but they're sneakier about it, kids are out there in the open playing games. Adults are hiding that they're playing games, but there's a lot of games being sold. I'll just say that. And uh, if you need a thesis around it, it's not just humans like games, although that's a pretty good one, I'd say. It's also, and it, not, it, is it an addictive drug? I mean, it may be. You've got thousands of years of game playing, and there's always favorite games, and these guys are sometimes on that list. Um, but the thesis even behind all that is low-cost entertainment. You know, most of these games are free, so you can be entertained for free, and then they're what's called freemium, right? So during the game, there's opportunities to buy stuff and that comes in a whole different ways. Buy uh, stuff to move through the game faster or um, better or with more fancy stuff in your treasure chest or whatever it is. Um, But uh, you can, in fact, be entertained for free. So is it a need or a want you know, I think humans' need for games is a need, but wanting their games is a bit of a want. They do have a lot of know-how, and they've organized themselves with teams that are developing games. So I think of it as the movie industry, but it's a very small screen. Um, and, you know, I wish I had the number here um, of, you know, sort of revenues per user kind of a thing, uh, which I don't have, so go get that. But the basic thesis is that it's low-cost entertainment. 
They have a low-cost model to developing games. There is a probability around even a skilled team developing the proper game. Uh, I've met some of the folks here. I think they have it organized as well as anyone could. It looks just like a Hollywood studio of the 40s. you got different groups of actors, if you will. Now they're the game developers working with different directors and different themes, and there's all kinds of different things. And part of the wind at your back here is smartphones. So there's a conversion going on from other forms of entertainment. I don't know how many of you played Monopoly over the holidays, but um, it's one of the few games that people still are playing. If you think back, if you're old enough to have a childhood where there were still a lot of board games, you know, not as many of them are being played. People are probably devoting as much time to entertainment, but it's just not, you know, it's, it's in mobile gaming. And I've owned other uh, game companies before, and I think longtime listeners will recall a whole series on Take Two TTWO. I probably recommended that, and you can Google it. Those old shows are out there, but I liked it for the same reason. Um, this is a little different. the The lifespan of these games is shorter. Other things are coming out. They, you know, they they really don't, you know, uh, have quite as long of a life cycle. But on the other hand. They're doing more frequently. They're easier to do, and uh, you get a bit of an annuity. Now, one of the things that's exciting about this company um, is uh, the valuation. And if I'm taking too long, just fast forward, something like that. But these guys have been completely beat up recently. Why? They were selling around this price a, you know, a couple of years ago. They had a long history of losing money. Okay, they've lost money for eight years Okay? Never made any money. Until when? Until now. They're making money for the first time ever, and yet the stock is hovering at the low of the last six years. Why? They got everyone's hopes built up about uh, a new genre of games, if you will. Uh, and that genre is, um, I guess, what would it be called? Uh, uh, you know, entertainer. Uh, games or media of some sort. So, you know, they, they did this Kim Kardashian game and you can go in and hang with Kim Kardashian and I can't, I can't tell you I've played the game. I, I don't know, but you, you do stuff with Kim. I think she blogs. She tells you what she's doing. You can shop for her stuff or, you know, again, I don't know exactly. I'm not very well prepared. Uh, for the Kim Kardashian, because the thing that was important to me was it's a genre that they sort of, I won't say invented, but this Kim Kardashian thing was huge, and a lot of people downloaded it. It almost seemed like a People magazine, but on your phone about Kim Kardashian, and it's a venue for her, you know, a little bit of the way Live Nation got some of the rights around uh, music entertainers. These guys are getting the rights around just what call it what, social entertainer in some fashion, and Kim Kardashian, the game. I'm sure they're paying enormous royalties and all that, but, um, you know, they're going to get their slice and they're going to ultimately make money on it, would be my guess. Maybe not on her, but on the genre. So they quickly signed up uh, Katy Perry and Nicki Minaj and uh, some other people who I've never heard of, but that's not the point. They've got people who have heard of them, and they're out trying to find these folks who um, 
you know, wouldn't mind having games around them, just just the way other folks have what, uh, you know, perfume or 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 china or what you know what have you golf clubs or you know there's uh, celebrity endorsements for things are not new what seems a little new is that the endorsement is the thing itself it's the game is the endorsement so uh in any case when they when they started to have some success with this people got extremely excited about it in the fall the stock went from around it was hovering around 4 and it went towards 7 just on the excitement of Kim and Katy Perry and et cetera. Well, a few weeks ago, they came out with their Katy Perry app, the next one, the follow-up to uh, Kim Kardashian. And uh, hold on. And I guess it simply hasn't met expectations, and the stock is down a lot. And... uh, of course, even last quarter, management reguided. They could see that some of the take-up curves and all that. I mean, they have some direct marketing science behind all these games, so they can tell quickly what's happening based on the downloads and the statistics behind that. And they knew pretty early on that this wasn't working, and they reguided down. And so the stock's been coming down in a couple of waves. I wasn't smart enough to sell it in part because I'm not a timer. And I think the underlying thesis here of entertainment, they're a low-cost producer. Uh, smartphone growth is uh, continuing well above GDP types of growth as you not only still have people having phones for the first time, but you have the whole replacement of old phones by smartphones, which is only about halfway through. So um, you got a long way to go uh, before that's done. And that's a bunch of wind at your back. Uh, and so I, I like the whole genre and I like the probabilities that, you know, they understand when they build teams, making games and that type of thing. But for whatever reason, the market simply, um, got a little ahead of itself and now it's way pulled back. And, uh, I think it's an opportunity here because again, the underlying is in pretty good shape. Here's the other element to this. You've got, I think the largest game company in the world. Tencent um, out of China, who you know made a pretty meaningful investment in this company last year, and it was uh, you know they 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 paid 126 million dollars for a 14 and a half percent interest, which is in effect a six dollar and 58 cent valuation. The stock's at whatever I said 250 or something like that, and the company has no debt. And I'll tell you, they have a ton of cash. They have $182 million in cash. That's a buck forty a share, no debt. So half the stock price is in cash and they're profitable. They just turned profitable for the first time. So it's a case where, um, you know, they've built an infrastructure of delivering quality entertainment to a fast-growing distribution channel. And yet the stock is under huge pressure because people are a little disappointed and they guide it down. My thesis is these guys are building a system just the way Warner Brothers did or MGM or NBC or CBS or 
people who understood the economics of their industries and became low-cost, consistent producers of quality content for those mediums. And these guys are doing the exact same thing in their medium, and the stock's been crushed. What else can I tell you? Uh, The valuation, you know, you can't really value it yet on earnings, even though I'm saying they're profitable. Uh, they're profitable uh, with seven cents. I think is the uh, the estimate for next year. Um, so that's not a great number, but I do think that there is a. Let me see here. There is an enterprise value to EBITDA number, I believe. Let's see here. Uh, well, I'm looking at. $14 million in trailing EBITDA. Uh, the stock enterprise value is 147 So it's, it's 10 times, 11 times. And again, to me, 11 times, the inverse of that is a 9% cash-on-cash return. If we all marched down here and bought this company, we would earn an 11% return on our cash, I think um, a lot of what normally might be viewed as capital spending at an industrial company, I'm going to guess is uh, expensed here because the life cycle of these games is so short, generally speaking, that they don't. And I'm just looking here to see what the difference is between EBITDA. Well, they, they they might capitalize some software. I don't have that handy here. But... I guess the point is is that an 11% cash-on-cash return is pretty good. They have turned profitable, and then you get the whole upside in them improving on their economies of scale, um, the, uh, uh, the smartphone uh, growth continuing, and them building out uh, some of these franchises as they lay stakes in the ground. So these old games that they got going on, they're still there. They put out new versions every year, so... You know, it's I won't call it the Indiana Jones franchise, but Deer Hunter, there's going to be a Deer Hunter 2017, 18, 19, and they're just going to milk it. And they understand the direct marketing and customer acquisition statistics around all that. So Glue Mobile, GLUU, uh, take a look at that one. All right. How am I doing here? Wow. The show, I, I was going to shoot for a 30-minuter, but uh, just gotten on going on a little bit here. All right, Thor Industries, ticker T-H-O. Uh, the thesis on these guys, they do RVs, is simply demographics. Baby boomers retiring. You know, the average baby boomer uh, was born in 1956. So for the next number of years, I guess, what, three or four years, now six years, we're going to have an increasing number of retirees every year if they can retire at 65. Certainly there's a lifestyle and a life cycle choice to wanting to get on the open road. It's been going on a long time. And you combine that with cheap gas, and I think uh, you got something here that looks pretty cheap. The compelling nature of this one is simply valuation. It's been a little bit beat up. It's nine times EBIT, uh, eight times EBITDA. 
It's a very well-run company. They've had a decade of uh, returns on assets, you know, in the teens. They, of course, had a bad year in 2009, as so did America. But other than that, they're returning assets in the mid-teens all the way back to 2005, 15%, 2013, 12%, last year, 13 this year, 14 And they don't use a ton of leverage, so return on equity is uh, in the upper teens, low 20s. They put up a decent operating margin in the mid-single digits, which I like because if that gets too high, it invites competition. They keep it low enough so it's hard for other people to come in and make money. But then they drive the returns with, uh, you know, asset turnover. So their sales to assets is about four times and. I'm a big fan of the DuPont formula where asset turnover times margin is a return on assets and uh and then how you you know fund the assets is your capital structure of course but you can put companies in buckets some have low margins and high turnover some have uh high margins and low turnover and to me I like companies that are doing really well with low margins it's just a giant barrier to entry. And when you start getting big sales to assets, a turnover, it's undoubtedly the product of a lot of investment over a lot of years. You know, you don't turn on the switch and your sales to assets is four times. That's years and years of honing some kinds of processes so that you can, you know, your 7% margin, if you do the reverse of that, it's some type of markup. And when you think about it, uh, their gross margin is 14%. That's a markup on cost of goods. So good luck, competitor, trying to make any money when you got to compete with that. And that's what, to me, is a giant moat when you talk about moats and all that is low return, low margins, high uh, asset turns. And these guys have that. They also have uh, $179 million in cash. That's $3.40 a share. The stock's 56, 56, so it's, you know, a little more than 5% of the stock in cash. But they've got no debt, and they're trading at 15 times next year's, you know, street estimates, which is, call it 5 bucks, and people are looking for a $75 price target. I think, you know, that's very reasonable here. This thing looks pretty cheap, and... Uh, I might not have a particular target in mind that's quite like that. I think this thing over a little bit longer period has an opportunity to double because not only can earnings kick in, you might get a little better growth than you expect, but the multiple's so low that this thing could move to a premium multiple. So, um, you know, I think, you know, you get a couple of good years behind you and this thing could probably, you know, move toward 100 uh, over a five-year period, it's you know more a double, what have you. So that's Thor Industries. Um, one other thing I want to mention on Thor, just because I wrote it down here, is they are in an oligopoly. There's three companies that have 80% of the industry, so that's pretty good for you know price stability, let's say. And then the other thing here I think is worth noting is the company – you can tell it's well run from the returns, but uh, I saw this stat. I thought it was worth passing along. Only 46, so they have 10,000 employees. 46 work in headquarters in uh, finance and legal, and uh, I thought that was 
a good number. That's half of 1%. Um, now, legal, that should be zero. I mean, let's be reasonable. Finance should be higher, of course. I might be biased. But in any case, I thought that was extremely um, lean in terms of how many folks that they have that are dedicated to actually driving the product. And, uh, you know, that's one way they keep costs low. So Thor Industries, THO. And then last up this week, uh, let's see here, Snack, ticker S-N-A-K. Stock is at 7 dollars and 11 cents and uh, what's my thesis here healthy eating okay healthy diets uh there's some huge trends at work that you know aren't secrets all you have to do is see that uh you know whole foods uh has replaced uh you know kroger in a lot of markets or you know dominic's uh foods goes out of business and it's taken over by uh, a lot of their locations by healthy uh, supermarkets. The square footage devoted to fresh uh, foods versus, you know, the old days is way changed. I think that's the easiest way to look at it. But what have you, um, health, spending money a little more on good food instead of on doctor's bills is good. There's obviously a trend of people being more aware of their doctor bills And we're all learning that instead of buying medicine, we can just eat the right foods, right? Or maybe you haven't had that talk with your doctor yet, but trust me, you will. So um, what do these guys do? Well, about half of what they do is um, healthy snacks in the chip area and pretzels and things like that. And they just need to be a little more healthy than the other guy. Um you know, and I don't have a list here of what they make. Um, just looking here. Well, they do they do a lot of uh, kettle chips. That's a very popular snack these days, and uh, and they do uh, they do a lot of uh, frozen berries, particularly in the Jamba. Brand. There's a Boulder Canyon brand and a Radar Farms brand. So they've got some regional brands. Um, but the thesis is primarily healthy eating. They're very small. So one of the things I like about this is that they're just getting going. Their total sales are $286 million. Their market cap is, uh, you know, $140 million. So this is teeny tiny. I don't think there's any analysts even covering this. But what what attracted my attention? I'll tell you what. They're in the smack dab of this long-term entrenched trend toward healthier eating. And that's going to come into sync with, you know, urban farming and all that that's happening a little bit here. Controlled environments, specific nutrients in the soil or directly to the roots. All these kinds of things are happening. And so healthy is... Uh, gaining share. One of the things these guys do that's a little more interesting than healthy potato chips, if that's an oxymoron, I'm sure, is they do fresh frozen and they do smoothie kits under the Jamba name 
and they do a couple of other brands, regional brands, and they're developing their own brand. But the main thing that they have is distribution relationships and capacity in an industry that's growing pretty fast. Well, they were all set to have a pretty good year this year, and then in the spring, uh, you know, people were finding this listeria germ around, and they didn't have any unhealthy customers. Nobody reported them. They found it. Uh, an, an incidence of this themselves through their own inspection, and they decided to completely shut down one of their main fruit um, facilities, which I think if you have any hint of a concern like that, you got to do it and protect the integrity of the brand. So they did that, and it was a big hit. Not only was it a hit to costs to shut down, um, clean everything, lose a quarter of production or two months anyway, but then... You know, their customers don't just wait around. Everyone's very, you know, respectful that they chose to do this. But Walmart still needs other customers or Kroger. So they lost some shelf space that then once even after the point in time when they were ready to produce, they'd lost some uh, shelf space. So, you know, they're slowly getting that back. And I think next year uh, looks like it's going to be a little bit uh, better. They're gonna they're gonna lose money this year, and what attracted me was simply that the stock was, uh, you know, selling at about a fifteen percent uh, discount to, uh, or I should say, at eighty five percent of uh, enterprise value to revenue. So on a revenue basis, it's very cheap. The enterprise value to EBITDA is 19, and that's with all the hit they took. It's not showing up in EBITDA because uh, they wrote a lot of stuff off. And, you know, that's a 5% cash-on-cash return. And it's a depressed number because sales have gotten beat up as a result of this by maybe as much as 30% down from what they would have normally been. Uh, the year-over-year sales numbers, so here, let me read you the numbers. In 2010, it was 134, then 162, 185, 216, 286, and now this year, 286. That was at one point estimated to be about 340. So they've lost 60 million in sales, all in the fresh, this fresh fruit area. Their, uh, their snack business is growing nicely in the teens, mid-teens, and it's been a big wind at their back during this tough period, and it helped them to maintain flat sales. But they're going to post a loss because, in effect, they're going to run all these expenses, and they should, uh, through the income statement to, you know, lost sales from the plant, all the equipment, the depreciation, everything running through there is going to go through um, uh, that write-off. And I don't think the EBITDA number here includes the DNA from the written-off business, and I don't think they're letting that show up in if you will, normal DNA. I think it's showing up in a in a big write-off number. I'm not certain about that, but that's what they should do. Um, their return on assets is, uh, you know, come down. So I guess the point here is that they've been really beat up due to an event that, in effect, is a positive for the company in an odd way in the sense that they're going to build a lot of confidence in the channels that they do the right thing when it comes to food. And I think that in the long run, 
That's going to be good for the brand. It's early enough in the cycle of fruit and smoothies particularly that, um, you know, the future customers you know, aren't even aware of this. And the existing customers, I think none of them were harmed. They probably would prefer that the company have an attitude of ensuring the safety. So I think there's a little bit of uncertainty right now. That's why, you know, it's come down a lot. This stock was, uh, well, in 2013, it got to 14, and now it's, you know, around 6 90 or seven bucks so it's come down a lot and i think uh you know at, at less than at less than sales um you know you put a a 10 percent margin on a company that doubles in sales it sells at one and a half or two times sales and you know the stock easily and i shouldn't say that again entertainment purposes only but to me this looks like kind of the sort of name that could triple over a five-year period, just because they're so small and they're just catching on uh, in terms of their brand. They're in a segment that's growing in terms of this flash freeze, the fruit in the farm, get it off to the supermarket. It's fresh as can be. And meantime, all the doctors, everyone's telling you to eat more fruit. And the knowledge that flash frozen fruit is actually healthier for you than that fresh fruit that looks fresh sitting over in the bins, that wave of knowledge is, you know, on the way, and these guys are going to already be there. So that's Snack, ticker S-N-A-K. I guess I probably could have done a better job on that one. The one thing I should warn you about here is the debt, okay? So they have $108 million in debt. I saw that they... Uh, just recently uh, did a refinancing, and it's a good time to do it. They're under a little near-term pressure, so they, they've they got a new uh, a new deal in place that I think should give the market a little bit more confidence that they've got, you know, three or four years' worth of cash uh, available to them. Yeah, their cash was getting down a bit. So in this most recent snapshot from the last quarter, their debt was 108 million, cash 900,000. They've just added 135 million in new debt. How much of that they're using to pay down, I don't know. But in any case, that's snack, S N A K. So that's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, Happy New Year. Uh, oops, almost forgot. Uh, favorite this week. So this goes to Phil. Um, I'm going to have to say glue, G-L-U-U. The trends are so huge in their favor. Half the stock price in cash, no debt, G-L-U-U. Go take a look. And then don't forget our website, www.thevalueguys.com. See all our caveats, disclosures, pictures our moms took. And again, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.